Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to explore and discover what it means to be truly known. On today's podcast, we are going to be talking about the mind. Kurt, <laughs> do you mind? <laughs> no, I don't. Well, Pepper, so Kurt, in some respects, go, yeah, 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 go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> do you mind if I do? We're off to a great start. <laughs> um, you know, in some respects, uh, this episode is pretty foundational because we're talking about that part of the human experience that people come into my office to ask questions about, like, because they're symptomatic in some way, shape, or form. You come to see a psychiatrist when you are having problems with your mind, so to speak. I mean, that's what people are thinking because we are depressed, we're anxious, we have manic depressive illness, we have all kinds of, we have challenges in our marriage in, in many respects. We're really talking about uh, the part of our experience where we experience our deepest pain and we experience our deepest joys and our deepest longings, our deepest griefs. All that takes place in the context of the mind. And so this morning, we'd like to talk about the importance of it and get some sense of what we really mean by that so that we can uh, be clear as we, as we talk about a number of different things over the course of our podcast time whether it's interpersonal neurobiology or spiritual formation or whatever, we're, we're really wanting to know what is the mind and how does that have anything to do with the, with the reason that we're meeting together? Right. So, you know, obviously, you know, you've got the brain, which is an organ. The mind is something sort of altogether different. Uh, can you, like, like, just the very basic level, how do you define... Um, and separate the mind from the brain, or can you separate the mind right. from the brain? Right, all good questions. And, you know, Pep, uh, over the course of centuries, millennia even, uh, there have been people who've been interested in this question and have been trying to get a definition to get around the idea of the mind. What is it? The, the Greeks used to talk about the mind as the soul, the psyche, Hebrews would talk about the soul in a different way. They were talking about the felt inner deep, deepest sense of who we are as human beings. More modernists, we tend to think mostly, we often tend to think in terms of uh, the mind is the thing with which we think. And especially um, people sometimes can think that we reduce the mind to the brain, that that's really all that it amounts to. It's just the thing that's in my head that organ in my head, and that it also uh, is the thing with which I primarily think. And, um, you know, the, the, the term interpersonal neurobiology that we've talked about on another uh, episode, you know, it is, a, it is a field of science that includes lots of different scientific disciplines, all of which have a stake in the definition of the mind, all of which have a stake in answering the question, what is the mind and how does it operate? And more, more importantly, what is a mind when it's flourishing? Um, and so we have a fairly straightforward working definition of the mind 
in the field of interpersonal neurobiology. And I think that what I'll do is I'll, I'll talk about it. I'll, I'm just I'm just going to name it. But it's you know, our, our listeners are going to find that it, it, it I mean, there's a lot of terms we want to go back and unpack. But I'll just name it that the mind is first. It is an embodied and relational process. That's the first part of our definition, that the mind is an embodied and relational process. And by embodied, we mean that it is certainly the brain, but it's so much more than that. And one quick example of that would be, if you are anxious, how would you know that you're anxious? Now, we think that if I'm anxious, I have anxious thoughts, but if I'm anxious, I also know that I'm anxious because I feel it in my chest. My heart's beating really fast, or I feel it in my stomach. I get butterflies, or I feel it in my face when my face flushes, or my hands get sweaty. So we know that the mind, in fact, is first of all embodied fully. We have to include our entire body when we think about the definition of the mind. And this is consistent with the Christian notion that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth. This is Genesis 2, 7. Formed the man from the dust of the earth, and he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and man became a living being, that he forms us out of mud, that we begin with mud, that there is this sense of physicality. Before we are anything, we are physical beings, and the mind is first physical. It's an embodied, and it's a relational process. And by that, we mean... A quick example is that when a baby comes into the world, a newborn, with its approximately 100 billion neurons in her little brain, about 20% of those neurons in her brain at that point in time are fully functioning and connected to the neurons that they need to connect to in order for them to function. So the neurons that help her heart to beat, for instance, they're running her heart well, they're running her lungs well, they're sensing things for her. There's a lot that's going on there that's working. But the other mm, 70 to 80% of the neurons in her little brain, in order for them to come into maturity, in order for them to begin to connect with the neurons that they need to connect with, in order for that little baby to become an infant and a toddler and then, you know, driving the car, they depend upon human interaction in order for those neurons to fire. So that baby has to see you seeing her. That baby has to hear your voice speaking to her. That baby has to feel you picking her up, comforting her. It depends so much on relationship in order for that brain to come to maturity. So the brain doesn't just grow up into maturity all by itself. All we need to do is feed her and clothe her and give her warmth and shelter. No, like she needs you in order for that to happen. Now, I'm just going to pause there for a second and just uh, see if, if you have any questions about that because I, I, I want our listeners to, to recognize, therefore, that our minds uh, are often things that we aren't paying attention to because we don't pay attention to our bodies. And by that, I don't mean like how much weight have I gained over COVID, but I mean like what am I sensing and feeling in my body? I often don't pay that much attention to that. And the other thing that it comes that comes to having a healthy mind is that I I don't really uh, I don't I don't have clearly in my mind the implications of the importance of relationship in the health and flourishing of my mind. And so those are the first two things that we talk about that the mind is an embodied 
and relational process that's constantly moving back and forth. One of the things this brings to uh, brings to mind yeah. is, uh, and I don't know whether this this sort of fascinated me, but I, I don't know whether it's you know the, the science is behind it or not. But when my um, youngest daughter was born and she was uh, a preemie and she was in the hospital, um, she, we couldn't touch her in the beginning. We couldn't you know because she mm. was in this incubator mm. and we couldn't we couldn't have, and it took a while before we were able to have this skin to skin contact right mm. where we could mm. you know. I'd go and, you know, <laughs> rip my shirt up and just put her, you know, hold her there. Uh, but when my, we would walk into the, to the uh, NICU and all the bells and whistles would be going off and she'd be, you know, ha- having really struggling to mm. survive and keep going. Mm. And, and uh, she would hear, especially my wife's voice mm. and everything would go calm. Oh my right? gosh. Oh, but even that, that but, hair stands up my, on my arms when you say right? that. And and more than that, um, one of the uh, uh, like the, the lactation nurse or somebody was talking to my wife, and she said, "You know, when you lay your baby on your chest, the baby's a, like somehow what is produced in your milk will change based on what the baby's needs are, hmm. and hmm. this connection here. So, you know." Like I say, I, I haven't researched the science behind it, but mm-hmm. uh, but it just feels like a picture of this um, mind connection, this mm-hmm. you know relational connection and development right. that that happens right. there. That happens there. Well, we'll we'll get to that in just a moment as we further you know, as we go further down the road on this this definition, um, and and we'll see when we get to the end of this definition what a little bit more about what you're just now talking about, mm-hmm. which is really a beautiful example. So it's this relational and this embodied and relational process. And the word process is important because it means it's always moving. It's always moving. And we, you know, we like to say that, you know, uh, people are always sensing and imaging and feeling things all the time. Uh, And, you know, except, you know, as we say, except if you're a 15 year old boy, right? Because like, you know, you come home and they, you, you know, you'd like to say, hey, so how was school today? And, you know, you get some kind of Fred Flintstone guttural answer out of this. And you're thinking, like, is anything happening? Is anybody at home? Or is anybody at home? Right. I'm not even sure the lights are on. Is anybody at home? Um, but there's, it's, it's important for us to recognize that we are always, this, this process that's always moving. The, the pace changes. Sometimes I'm uh, feeling certain things. I'm feeling other things at other times. But the, the pace changes, but the process is always in play. So this is an embodied and relational process that emerges from within and between brains. So it emerge, it's an emergent process. And by emergent, we mean... Uh, if, if you if you imagine that you're looking at a camp through a camera lens that's looking at some kind of a target, but the the camera lens is really out of focus, and all you see is some kind of blurry image, and it's so blurry that you can't even begin to make out what you think it is that the camera's looking at, and little by little by little, the camera lens starts to come more and more into focus. And you think you can predict it, but you might, you know, we, if we've, we, we might think we know exactly what we're going to be seeing, but then we see something maybe totally different than what we thought we were going to see. But when it comes into focus, 
we're waiting for that lens to bring things into focus. And the mind, in some respects, is like this. It's an emergent process in that things are greater, this sense that like the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. We would like, I mean, I am, I like to be able to predict things. I like to be able to know uh, what my day is going to be like. I like to know what my kid's day is going to be like. I like to know that what my, what my marriage day is going to be like. And so, for instance, we'll just take that relationship as a possibility. Like, my mind continues to emerge, not just from birth to infancy to toddlerhood and so on. It's emerging. It's growing. But that process never stops. And so, I would like to think that I can control all the things that I'm going to feel and think today. But it's going to be an emerging process. There is something about the day that is going to unfold in which... I'm going to find myself feeling things that I didn't anticipate that I was going to feel because of my interactions in my relationships with other people or because of the car accident that I had that I didn't see coming. And so it is this constantly growing process. It's emerging from within and between brains, this sense that it's always, back, hearkening back to this embodied and relational process, it is an emerging process. And so when I leave my house in the morning, One of the things that the Christian story really invites me to do is to anticipate that this is going to be a day in which things are going to happen, in which I am going to be changed by the end of the day. And I'm going to be changed in ways that I can't always 100% predict. And so being open to that emerging process is important. It's also helpful to know that the brain itself could give us an example of this. If you take one neuron, it's a pretty elegant anatomical, you know, thing, but it can't really do very much all by itself. And especially neurons that are housed in the part of your brain that keep your heart beating, you know, by themselves, they can keep your heart beating, but they can't give you Tchaikovsky. But neither can the prefrontal cortex out here all by itself in Tchaikovsky's brain give us Tchaikovsky. He has to have the neurons that are charged with doing something totally different. That are going to work together. They're going to combine. They're emerging from within and between brains. And like what's happening right now, this podcast couldn't ever be what it is without you and Amy being together with me on this, right? This, this whole thing emerges from within and between brains. Again, there's a certain sense of humility that my mind is not just my own. My mind, what I sense and image and feel and think, certainly those things are happening within my embodied experience, but so much of what is and makes up my mind and what I think it to be has everything to do with the interactions I'm having with other people. The beauty that we see in the world isn't just because of me and me alone. It's because of these interactions that I'm having with other people. So there is this embodied and relational process that emerges from within and between brains whose task it is to regulate the flow of energy and information. Now, this whole definition is a, is, is a bit of a mouthful and you know, you, you feel like you got to have a graduate degree in neuroscience uh, to understand it or even to, like, to repeat it. But it's really intended for us to pay attention to as a way for us to be curious about how we can flourish. So when we talk about how the task 
of the mind is to regulate the flow of energy and information, we mean the following. First of all, we don't control things. We regulate things. Human beings actually don't control anything. We have agency and we can regulate things, but we don't absolutely, like dictators, control anything. I can't control my heart rate, absolutely. I ultimately can't even control my breathing rate. I can regulate it. I can move it up and move it down, but there are going to be certain parameters within which, you know, I can only hold my breath for so long and then I got to start breathing again. I regulate things, but I have agency. I do have the capacity to do something. And I have the capacity to take initiative to direct my attention, which we'll get to eventually. How do I direct my attention to the things that I want to become? When I'm being invited to have my attention distracted by so many other things in the world, right? So I'm regulating the flow of energy and information. By energy, we really are referring to this neurobiochemical stuff that's flowing around between our brain and our body, but not just all those impulses that we learned about maybe in eighth grade science, all that electrical stuff that's going down the neuron, but also the energy pepper that's going on between you and me. It's not just the energy within me, it's the energy between us, because we like to say, we, we know that about 80 to 90% of human communication, the, the, the volume of it, the bulk of it, how we communicate is nonverbal in nature. Well, how do we actually know what those nonverbal cues are? It's because of the, literally, the photons and the waveforms of the sound and the light that's coming across the room from you to me. It's, it's that energy that is felt between hope and you when you lay her on your chest so earlier when you were mentioning this experience that Hope would have in terms of how even her presence in Nell's body would change the content of how Nell's milk content just shifts because of what Hope needs because of the contact and the presence. We're talking about energy exchange between people. And it's not a question of if it will happen. It's a question of are we paying attention to the fact that it is happening? And so here right away, we already see, you know, we wonder, uh, do I mean anything to people? I, we would want them to, we would want you to know when you walk in the room, literally, the electromagnetic physics of the room change. And of course, for you, Pepper, that happens all the time because, because if you're the most beautiful man <laughs> yeah. in the world, this, okay, this I mean, like, this just happens all the time. Uh-huh. But but I think part of what is important for us as believers is to recognize that God has made us as people who regulate the energy in the room. And part of what has happened in the Garden of Eden and with our shame is that we are cut off completely from being aware that I am a regulator of the energy in the room. I am a steward of all of this physical energy that's taking place in the room. It's energy and information, and that's what's the other side of this energy, because we humans are always in the business of making sense of what we sense. We give meaning to all the energy. I see the look in your face, and I make meaning out of that. I hear the tone in your voice, and I make meaning out of that. I'm gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna translate into information. 
not just in my mind, but between us. And collectively, we are going to be, as, as we've talked in an earlier episode, you know, we are storytellers. And the ultimate way in which we make meaning out of all of this emerging energy is that we tell stories. And we tell stories in such a way that we want our minds to flourish. And there are some kind of rules and some, some guidelines that we think about when, when our mind is flourishing and isn't flourishing. But that's just, a, I know that's, that's a little long-winded, but it gives us an idea about what we, with interpersonal neurobiology, how we think about the mind so that, it, we, so that we're, we're clear that we're not just, our mind isn't just the thing with which we think. We have, a, we have this little acronym that we use. It's called, we, we spell it out, S-I-F-T-B, SIFT-B. And each of those letters, it's kind of a shorthand for what the mind, this defined entity that we just talked about, what the mind actually does. And the mind, it senses, we sense for the S, we image for the I, we feel, we think, at sift, and then the letter B is that we behave. Are we? We move our bodies in response to the things that we sense, image, feel, and think. And so that little um, shorthand acronym, sift B, is kind of a helpful way to kind of you know kind of keep that in our hip pocket uh, instead of like memorizing the entire definition that we've already talked about as a way to just be curious about at any given moment. What am I sensing? What am I imaging? What am I feeling? What am I thinking? And what is my body? Uh, what, what do I sense my body wanting to be able to do or to act out um, in, in this moment? And the more curious we are about what our mind is and what it is doing leads to wisdom. It leads to my ability then to uh, be more clear and careful about the actions that I want to take. Um, I, we, we talk about, and we, we will probably remember that we'll talk about this again, my, our, our daughter was oh, about I think she's about 14 or 15 years of age. You've heard me tell this story. She's about 14 or 15, and our church was going to have a work day on a Saturday morning at 8 o'clock in the morning. And so our my daughter was 14, our son was 11, and we had to be up and out of the house probably by 7.30 on a Saturday morning. And this is like a death knell, right, if you've got teenagers in the house. Like, it's one thing if you're, like, <laughs> leaving on a plane to go to Disney World. But no, you're going to go clean right. the church, work on the church crowd. 7.30 in the morning. And so, like, you know, like a good parent, like, I know that, like, I don't want to deal with that on Saturday morning. So, I, you start early, right? So, you start to talk to your kids, you know, early in the week. So, Monday at dinner, Tuesday at dinner, Wednesday at dinner, I'm warning the troops that we're moving out for Normandy at 7.30 in the morning on Saturday. Friday night, it's at 10 o'clock about that, and I'm ready to go to bed because we got to get up early and, like, hit, you know, o- Omaha Beach is coming tomorrow morning. Right. And... uh I'll never forget, she's sitting, my daughter is just sitting on the kitchen counter, and I just asked a simple question. It was, it really was, I promise you, it was a simple question. <laughs> it, it, I said, what time would you like me to get you up in the morning? And I mean, like, you want to ask, like, has anybody ever had a teenage girl roll her eyes at you? Like, yeah. And then it's the, <sighs> like, it's oh, this yeah. tisk and this sigh, and, you know... I'm leaning up against the counter across the room from her and I'm reaching for the meat cleaver behind me. I'm because I like, 
I, daggone it, I have worked all week to be the good parent. Like, I warned them. I let them know. Like, I, I've, like heck, I've written books. I've read the books. I've written books. Why, why is this not working? And the first thing that caught my attention was, like, how I just stiffened from my jaw through my chest. And, like, I was, I was ready to pounce and so I wasn't, it was, it was interesting that like, I, I didn't, it didn't first strike me, oh, I'm angry. The first thing that I became aware of was just how tense I was in my body. And of course, this is happening in, you know, pretty short order. But, you know, it was one of those rare occasions when, you know, my parenting actually was what I would hope it to be. And I then said, can you tell me what this is about? you know, the whole time it's like through gritted teeth. <laughs> and, and of course, because like, I know, like, I just want a simple answer, you know, please get me up at seven fifteen or whatever. And then I go to bed. I don't want what I know, which was coming. And it did like, so we spend the next 30 minutes. We, 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 you know, we got off the way from the counters, go into the family room, sit down. And we have a 30 minute conversation about what a hellish week she'd had. It had just been an awful week at school. And of course, you know, you're, you're grateful for those moments. But I think part of the issue is it's so easy for me to just react. And then I'm only aware of like, well, what I said. Because I'm not really paying that much attention to the other elements of my mind that God has created to help us pay attention to what's going on in the world. And so the more curious we are about these different elements of our minds, what we sense, what we image, what we feel, what we think, that leads us to become more aware of the stories that I'm telling. The story that I was telling myself that I didn't even know that I was telling myself, which was, you have to parent this week the way you need to, and if you do, then everything will be fine, and 10 o'clock on Friday will come, and you'll ask this question, and everybody will go to bed. I wasn't aware that embedded in that story was that I need this to be the outcome of the week or else I'm not going to be okay. I don't have the flexibility or the endurance or the capability to have yet another long conversation from 10 to 10.30. Like, I don't have what it takes. That's also part of my implicit story that my brain is trying to tell me, but if I'm not going to pay attention to these other parts of my mind, I'm not going to know. So I know that's kind of all long-winded there, but that gives us some idea about what we're talking about. So can this sort of, this energy, this uh, sort of electromagnetic energy that passes between us, can that be measured? You know, um, it can can be measured in the sense that um, uh, you can measure light waves. You can measure sound waves. So... Uh, the data on, you know, have you, uh, you know, if you, you can go into a studio and you can measure what people actually hear when other people's voices are spoken. Uh, research that's been done on how people even see things pass before them in very fast photographic uh, fashion. People see things that they don't even know that they see. And the things that they see, if you're, if you're shown, for instance, um, a short video and in the video is embedded every so many frames. There's a frame of a, of a frightening picture, but you don't really pick it up consciously, but your brain still registers. That's for, And then you find yourself feeling afraid for reasons that you don't know. 
or when you listen to a piece of you you watch a you you watch just a a video film footage for instance of a of a walk in the woods and you um you uh attach to that a certain like comforting lilting um uh, music score and then you measure the tone of sweat on a person's on a person's arm but then if you match it to a different music score that's kind of more you know sinister like frightening mm-hmm. you have a different layer you have a different measurement of the tension and tone in a person's skin and so these are just some of the ways that apart from even the stories that we're telling these are just ways in which we've measured the the, the differences in terms of how people take in and respond to the nonverbal energy as it were that we experience in the course of communication across the room from inanimate objects, but also from other human beings. And so it's important for us to be aware that we are actually going to be changing the minds of other people at any given moment, merely by what we, merely by walking into the room. You walk into you walk into the room and someone sees you and it like you know if they if they've never met you before they they like a, a felt sense of a curiosity might raise up in them or if they've seen you and they and and they're your good friend this fullness raises up and you haven't even talked to them yet they just see you walk in the room mm. yeah 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 I know that you know we've established that part of the mind is embodied in the brain um, does the mind is it capable of changing the brain? It would seem like, yeah, it would seem like it, my answer would be before you, you get, would be yes, it does. But I'm curious to know what the truth is. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, this is the beautiful thing about the gospel as well, that when St. Paul writes in Romans 12, therefore I beseech you by the mercies of God, and notice he doesn't say, by God's edict, by God's order, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. Present your bodies a living, whole sacrifice. Present your bodies. It's really striking to me. He doesn't say, present your minds. He doesn't say, present your thinking. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And, you know, St. Paul was, you know, he's this brilliant uh, writer where he's always mixing these metaphors together. And he's talking about a single topic, but using different words to approach it. So present your bodies, but transform your minds. And in those words right there, 2,000 years ago, we have the, the language that gives us this sense that my body and my mind is all part of this same matrix. And so we can, if, if, if I'm going to uh, practice paying attention, one of, the, one of the exercises, for instance, that we give to people uh, regarding um, uh, their, their capacity to be more at peace with themselves. We give them meditation exercises, but we give them meditation exercises to meditate on certain pieces of music or certain scriptural verses or even just breathing exercises. And we know that when they do these kinds of things, the neurons in the hippocampus, so it's the, the hippocampus is a 
It's a strip of neuron tissue, nerve cells on both sides of the brain toward the center of the brain that are responsible for a number of different things, but one of which is short-term memory, that those hippocampal cells can start to thicken. They grow. They get bigger when we do things that allow our minds to witness, to be stimulated by these nonverbal cues. And so as my mind is changing, as I'm interacting with other people in particular ways, it changes my brain. So when St. Paul says, therefore be renewed by the transfer, by, by be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that transformation is not just a metaphor. It's not just an abstraction. There is a literal transformation of multiple different parts of your brain, especially the parts of our brain that make us most uniquely human. Our hippocampus, how we have short-term memory, our middle prefrontal cortex, which we'll talk about later in another episode, these different parts of our brains can be transformed, can be exercised. These neurons can grow. These neurons can become more connected. These neurons can become larger in and of themselves to become more efficient in their electrical transmittal. All these things can happen when we are placing ourselves in these positions of interpersonal connection, of meditation, of strengthening, of resilience, of, we've spoken before here, of putting ourselves in the path of oncoming beauty. And in this way, we like to say, we are practicing for heaven. We really do believe that what we're doing now is kind of like a precursor for what the whole shebang is going to look like when new heaven and new earth arrives in its fullness. And that requires a lot of change. That requires a lot of transformation. And transformation is hard work. It's really hard work. But this transformation can completely take place um, in a way that both can respond to what I do as an individual, but also to what we do together. One of the most important ways that this transformation, as you said, like how can the mind change the brain? One of the most important ways this happens these days is in the work that we do in treating trauma. People have, our listeners might be familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and one of the fundamental elements of PTSD is that the mind, our experience, our subjective experience becomes disintegrated. It becomes, I have, you know, I'm, I hear, um, you know, I hear a pop of a car engine and I am afraid that it's really a gun or because I'm, I'm still in Iraq or I can be in the presence. If I'm, if I'm a female and I've had, um, a history of sexual abuse, I can find myself then in the very presence of an adult male. And I start to find my entire body begin beginning to shake and tremor because I'm just in the presence of a person who could be a lovely person, who's not a threat, but the very nonverbal cues that are acting on my mind are actually chain, are actually like disintegrating my brain's capacity to recognize, no, this person is safe. And so some of the work that we do in working with patients, whether it's EMDR, that's a form of intervention that we can talk about later, or other form neurofeedback, other forms of trauma intervention 
what they do is they take advantage of these things that we're learning about the mind and the brain, and we can give people exercises, relational exercises and physical exercises that actually enable the brain to reintegrate for the prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate gyrus and the brainstem, for instance, to be more effectively connected so that my middle prefrontal cortex can regulate these other parts of my brain that are so quick to want to flee or fight because of the memory of the trauma, those changes that take place in the brain are done so because of these things I'm doing in my mind. And what are those things? There are some activities that I have, but they're also just the very act of being in your presence, being in the presence of another human being who looks or feels very much like the person who abused me, but in fact is speaking kindly to me, in fact is being gentle with me, in fact is not leaving the room, is not mistreating me, but is in fact doing something very different. And so there are lots of ways in which we can activate the mind in order to change the brain, which I think is a a powerful example of how we can say that what St. Paul wrote about so many years ago isn't just stuff we're making up in thin air. That's great. That's really, really great. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, and I think there's so many, I mean, there's, there's, I have more questions. We'll have to pick up, you know, again, you know, um, I, it makes me appreciate what Gandhi said. He said, uh, I'll never let anyone walk through my mind with their dirty feet. (laughs) (laughs) Gives me a little bit of better understanding about that, you know, paying attention to what you're paying attention to and how we can um, impact one another's minds. Yeah, um, indeed. Yeah, it's big stuff. Yeah. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks for the time today. It's been great. Thanks, Pepper. Great to be with you, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Love you. Love you, too. Until next time. Until next time. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and music is provided by Noah Needleman. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on our website, beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at beingknownpod. Be well and be known. I'm